Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. The last school bells of the academic year have rung, and while that used to mean trips to the pool or vacations, classes are still the rule for some students. When the final school bell rang a year ago, educators across the state and country worried about an education gap how much learning students lost due to the loss of time in the classroom from the COVID-19 outbreak. This past year, there were fewer disruptions as students went back to the classroom, but there were still concerns about the academic loss. Governor Doug Ducey announced the AZ on Track summer camp program to get students caught up this summer. Ana Gallego, the chief schools officer for the Sunnyside Unified School District, says looking back at the past school year, students did struggle, but she also says they're resilient. While it took them a while to get reacclimated to school, and not just in terms of academics, but even uh, behavior, self-regulation, you know, sitting in a classroom all day where before they were at home, they could go get a snack. It's not the same. So it, it took a while, I would say, the first semester. But once they started getting acclimated to school, we saw that they were excited to be in school. And we started working to offer opportunities to catch up on the deficits or learning gaps that they had. We offered after-school opportunities to all of our students in Sunnyside, in all of our schools. And we also worked with our teachers to make sure that during the day, they were targeting specific skills that students maybe uh, lacking or had, again, deficits in smaller, working in smaller groups. Um, and so we have seen that the number of students that attended after school this year was a lot higher than in previous years. Um, also summer school, we've seen our numbers quite high, um, especially at the high school level where we have, I would say, between the two high schools where we are often offering it, almost 600 students attended. And we are offering it free of charge as well, which in the past, again, has been uh, hard for students. So we are doing everything we can to make sure that our students catch up. When you say you've got 600 students, for example, at the high school level doing summer school this year, are they just trying to catch up or is there something that many of them are trying to accomplish beyond the stereotypical, well, you didn't do so well in math? Yes. So we have about 300 at each of our high schools. Some of them are trying to recover credits. Maybe during COVID when we were online, you know, they were not able to pass a class. Uh, they, do, they didn't do as well. Uh, specifically, like you mentioned, math, that is, it's hard when you don't have the teacher next to you helping you or providing you help. So we have a lot of students who are catching up on credits and also a couple who want to get ahead. But the majority, I would say, are catching up on credits that they may, maybe necessarily didn't do as well during COVID or they want to do better. We just talked about math being something that a lot of students struggled with during COVID. Did you find, and in talking with teachers, there were other things besides math that students were really struggling with as we came out of kind of that peak of COVID? Yes, I would say reading specifically for our students in K through third grades, because those are the basics. Uh, th that's a foundation uh, years and, and skills for reading. And so we found that our students from K through third definitely uh, had uh, deficits and learning gaps in some areas. 
So I would say that hearing from teachers, that was their biggest concern. How hard was it on teachers, especially in a classroom, if they want to target whatever the kids were missing, but maybe you had one student who had a math deficit, another had a reading deficit? You know, it's not easy because it's difficult, especially in elementary where a teacher has to teach all subjects. I think this is where looking at data uh, helps. If we know specifically what skills are needed, then you don't necessarily target those skills only during your small group time, but throughout the day, you you bring it in, you spiral it in. So I have to say that our uh, curriculum and instruction uh, people work very hard with teachers, meeting with them on Wednesdays, specific Wednesdays every quarter to, to do some professional development on how to address those gaps in the classroom and really looking at data, making sure that kids were making the growth they needed to make. So we're in summer. Summer school is open, but not every student is there, though a lot of them are. A lot of them might be at the city pools that are open, trying to stay cool. But are there things that parents and students need to be doing to keep that gap being closed as we get ready? I hate to say it for the students' sake, but August is right around the corner, and so is the start of school. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, you know, I would say that one of the things that we always recommend is for students to read during the summer. Um, the, our public libraries have programs, incentives for students to read. I say keeping busy uh, with math now. There's a lot of online free programs. Uh, teachers have actually shared some of these. And if parents can help their children by looking at some free programs online, almost everybody can do it on their phones even now, just so they keep their minds active. You know, it's almost like when you exercise, you want to keep your, you know, healthy and, and we want kids reading. And, you know, looking at at things online where they offer mathematics, problem solving skills, and then socialization is also important. You know, a lot of parents put their kids in summer camps because that's one of the things that we also notice. Our students have difficulty acclimating to being with other students. So socialization skills are, are also important. In anticipation of the new school year come August, are we still expecting kids to be suffering a little bit from the learning gap, or do you think it's pretty well caught up at this point? Oh, no. You know what? Even before COVID, we always had students that had certain areas learning gaps for different reasons. And so I we don't expect it to say, okay, we're caught up. We always have that, but I do still expect that students will continue and we need to continue to offer as much opportunities for our parents in after school um, tutoring. Um, We will continue with what we call Weekend Academy at the high school where students can come in and get additional help with classes they may not be doing well. Also working with our teachers to make sure that they are understanding how to address those learning gaps during the day. You mentioned some of the after-school programs and Weekend Academy. That's got to be hard on teachers, too. How do you balance burnout? You know what? It's interesting that you say that because we have some situations, especially this summer, where some of our teachers said, you know, we need the summer. We, We were exhausted. So instead of offering it at every site, we created satellites in some situations where schools Uh, invited kids from other schools. And then we uh, had teachers that, we always have teachers that want to work in the summer. 
So that's one way in which we uh, combine sites so that not everybody had to had to work who didn't need to. And during the year, you know, we really um, do it only for like an hour, hour and a half after school. We, we don't just do tutoring. We also do enrichment activities, which sometimes for teachers are fun, fun ways, fun things to do with kids after school. So, but yes, that is definitely uh, something that we need to be aware of. It's not just the kids who had to get through COVID. It was the teachers, too, who had to learn how to teach online very quickly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And they had kids at home, too, that they had to take care of. So, you know, their needs are also very important for us. That was Ana Gallego, the chief schools officer for the Sunnyside Unified School District. For some students, school is more than just a place to gain knowledge. It's a place where they can get food. As a result, the closure of schools for the summer can be tough on some low-income families. Many school districts try and offset that problem by offering summer breakfast and lunch programs. Lindsay Aguilar is the director of food services at the Tucson Unified School District. Our summer meals program consists of um, breakfast at and lunch during the month of June at all of our school sites. Um, they're all operating a summer school program. So we are providing meals which are available to any children 18 and under. Um, we have the information posted on our district website. If you go to the TUSD1.org, there's a summer meals link right on the um, front page. Um, we also do partner with a variety of community locations such as uh, Boys and Girls Clubs, um, Kidco through Parks and Rec through the city of Tucson um, and a few other locations. Um, so we have over about 100 um, locations throughout Tucson that we are um, providing summer meals at. And again, it's free to all children 18 and under. Um, so even if the child is not participating in the summer school program at the school or participating um, in the Boys and Girls Clubs or wherever the location is, um, the summer meal program does allow um, any children to access those meals. So um, we certainly encourage, you know, parents to look for a location that's close to them, or they can always call our food service department um, at 225-4700. And our uh, receptionist will help people locate, you know, where the closest um, summer meal location is to them. You mentioned, I think, what is probably a pretty important fact. The kids who are participating in this don't have to be in summer school or in another program. They can just show up twice a day and pick up their meals. Absolutely. And the, the meal service times are listed on our website as well. There's a um, listing that has all of the addresses and the days that the the meals are available in the time frame so that parents and families can know what time um, they would need to be at that location to receive meals. And during um, the month of June, the really nice thing is we're still under the um, waivers that USDA has allowed us to, uh, for parents to be able to take the meals home. So the students don't have to eat um, under normal circumstances, the meals do have to be consumed on site. But right now, um, through the end of this month, we are still able to allow families to take the meals home for the child to eat rather than stay. So if they're not participating in the summer school, they can come to the school, get their meal and then go home to um, eat their meal. During the start of the pandemic, a lot of school districts, I believe TUSD was one of them, were providing programs like this. And then on Friday, there was a little bit extra to help get 
kids and families through the weekend. Is that still going on with the summer program or was that kind of a pandemic only issue? It was more um, something that was done during the, the pandemic. We're not currently doing um, the weekend meals, but again, our locations, um, most of them are Monday through Thursday. Some of them are open on Fridays um, so that that we, you know, families can have access to food, um, you know, during at least the weekdays. Um, but yeah, the weekend meals, um, we're currently um, no longer doing that. Um, but we are able to provide the breakfast and lunch during the week. When it comes to the end of this month in July, does the program totally shut down until school starts again in August? Or is there any type of a bridge program? We do have, um, currently we have over 100 locations for summer meals in July. It does decrease down to about 25, um, but we will still have locations in various, you know, areas of our community. So again, um, we'll update the listing on our website um, for July so that families know where they can still access um, meals during July. So we will still be operating in July just at a smaller scale, but we will have meals available. When it comes to participation, how many kids are you seeing? And I understand it probably changes day to day, but kind of ballpark. How many kids are you seeing participate in this summer program? We are still um, actually getting all of that data gathered from our, you know, over 100 locations. They just launched last week. So we're starting to get our um meal count sheets collected from our sites from the first week and process them so we can kind of have an idea of where we land. So I don't have the exact figures right now. Um, but, you know, we we have over, you know, almost 10,000 students enrolled just in our district summer school program. So um, I certainly expect that we are probably feeding, you know, quite a few thousand children um, so far this summer. And then, of course, you know, expanding to others that maybe aren't participating in the program. So um, I will have those numbers soon. I, we're still kind of processing the totals for each site. So I don't have an exact figure right now. Have you seen these numbers? And I know you don't have the current ones, but over time, have you seen these numbers go up, go down? Or are they Do they tend to be steady summer to summer? They do vary quite a bit. So we we kind of see, you know, changes. And the last two years obviously has, you know, definitely impacted um, participation levels. But, you know, pre-COVID, um, again, it kind of just depended a lot upon what the schools were doing, what programs were being offered, um, because we do, you know, obviously draw a lot of participation from the students that are coming to the school sites. Um, but we do really try to encourage, you know, families in the neighborhood or just nearby that, you know, to access, you know, these meals during the summer. But the majority of the participation does come from the programs, whether it's a KidCo program or, you know, the kids that are going to the Boys and Girls Clubs. Um, but we do have, you know, neighborhood, you know, children at some of our locations that do come consistently. So it's definitely um, something that we promote and try to encourage families to know that that access is there. So it does vary a lot, kind of just depending on what programs are running in the community and where the, where the children are. Um, so we, we definitely try to get the messaging out. You mentioned that TUSD is operating under a waiver that lets kids and families take the food away. They don't have to eat it wherever it's being distributed. Is this largely a federal program or is this something that TUSD dollars are covering? No, this is funded um, by the federal government. So the summer meals program um, is implemented through USDA. Um, and then 
we, as an operator, um, we are receiving that reimbursement from the state level through the Department of Education, but it is funded um, by the federal government through USDA, and it's something that um, is available every summer, and there are stipulations as to qualifying locations and um, all of that, but like you mentioned, the waivers have really helped kind of expand access, and um, there's some eligibility waivers that are, you know, have been able to be used to provide meals at locations that perhaps wouldn't normally qualify. Um, so yes, but it is it is not funded through TUSD. We just operate the program and um, receive that reimbursement from USDA for the meals that we do provide. Going forward, if there is a community group you mentioned like the Boys and Girls Club, uh, but if there's another group that wants to get in touch with you all and say, hey, we'd love to be a location, is that something that's possible? Maybe not for this summer, but going forward? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, you know, we have different community partners that will reach out and just inquire if it's something that, you know, we can um, set them up as one of our locations. Um, we do, you know, try really hard to, um, you know, connect and be able to partner with as many as we can. Uh, sometimes we do get to a point with our capacity, unfortunately, with staffing and just our delivery trucks. We only have, you know, so many, um, you know, distribution routes that we can we can run each day, but we are at max capacity right now. And we, we definitely have some new partners this summer that we've partnered with and or, you know, that maybe haven't had a program for the last two years and now they're open back up. So it's nice to see us, you know, kind of back to kind of our pre-COVID uh, partnerships. That was Lindsay Aguilar, the director of food services with TUSD. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. School is out for the summer, but classrooms are still full around Arizona as students and teachers try to fill the education gap. Child care can be a struggle for some families. The pandemic has only made the problem worse when facilities close due to COVID outbreaks, but parents still have to work. Maria Poletta with the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting looked into the cost of child care and how that hits the state's economy. The headline of her article said child care woes cost the Arizona economy close to $2 billion a year. Arizona's child care system has struggled since well before the pandemic. It was already pretty unstable. So uh, unfortunately, these findings, while they're pretty striking, I would caution people not to think that this is a new problem. The 1.8 figure is really focused on, you know, professional opportunities, educational opportunities that parents have had to forego. Whether that's entirely, you know, completely dropping out of school or quitting their job, um, or if, if it's more of a partial, you know, going from full time to part time or foregoing a promotion. But there are quite a few ways that having a lack of child care and not having that or, or not having consistent child care can really affect somebody who's who's trying to advance. You know, you mentioned that temporarily quitting a job, and we all know that's usually the woman involved in that. It struck me in your reporting how big a number it is. Oh, I'm just going to take three years off, four years off until our child is in school, and then I'll go back to work. It has a huge economic impact, and it's just not the salary you lose in those couple of years. 
absolutely. I'm, I'm sure we've all been in jobs where, you know, the raise that you were going for or hopefully given was based, you know, was building on what your base pay was. And every year that, that you're not working, that sort of base number that you're coming back at, it is staying static or maybe even dropping. So you're absolutely right that it ends up being an exponential loss. Um, uh, and as you said, particularly for women, particularly women of color, um, when they're out of the workforce, even for a few years, uh, once you sort of extrapolate that and look at it over time, that can come into play as well with the educational opportunities. If you have somebody who is um, working an hourly job, they want to change careers, they want something more stable, higher earning potential, Potential, but they don't have consistent enough childcare to even pursue that educational opportunity that, again, you know, could have ultimately hundreds of thousands of dollars of economic impact, um, both when it comes to individual impact for um, the parent or the family, as well as for the overall economy and, and what that person is, is generating, both in terms of taxes or, you know, just their purchasing power. You said, I think the number in the article was $500,000 if you take three years off from work to take care of a child, plus there's the, now you have three years out of whatever the business is, you could be behind technologically or just experience-wise, it's three fewer years. Those are big numbers. Those are absolutely big numbers, and it is is very hard to catch up. Of course, it's not impossible, but um, you also have to keep in mind that you may have a more stable childcare situation upon your return, um, but you're still a parent. You're still, you know, it, it still can be a bit unpredictable, and so it's not necessarily smooth sailing even after you're you're attempting to come back. Um, so it, it definitely can have a, a long-lasting impact. And and again, as you said, this tends to fall disproportionately heavily on mothers. There was also some data you were uh, working with in the story that showed when it comes to education, how many people have to either slow their education down if they're getting an education when the child arrives, or they completely stop their education and may not go back to it. The researchers in the study that I covered essentially said the longer people stay away from their education program, even if it starts as, I'm just going to take a break for, for a semester, um, the less likely it is that they will return. Once you once you have taken that break, it gets harder and harder um, to get all sort of the, the chips in line to make it possible for you to go back. And again, that then affects um, you know your educational attainment and then as a consequence, often uh, earning potential. It really looked like, based on your reporting, that having quality child care, of course, is good for the child, especially we know from all the studies going forward with education, early childhood, good quality care is great. But it really affects all of us because of the impact on the economy in the short term and the long term for the parents. It is something I would argue, you know, it is relevant. Child care is relevant to you as an Arizona resident, even if you don't have a child and even if you don't have a child in child care currently because of the scope of that economic impact. You know, we have state leaders talking, especially post pandemic, about wanting to get parents back to work, wanting to, you know, parents to pursue different degree programs to advance. Um, and that's very difficult, if not impossible in some cases, um, if, if parents don't have consistent child care that they can, <laughs> that they have a 
chance of affording, right? Because it's not just availability of childcare, which can vary quite a bit depending on where in our state you live. Um, if you're in a rural area, your your options could be very limited or it could require, you know, a 30 mile drive, whereas somebody perhaps in an urban area has a couple options around the corner. Um, cost is a factor, of course, um, it, especially if you have an infant, the younger your child is, the closer it is to, you know, about a year of college tuition um, to pay for a year of quality childcare right now. Um, and then again, if you have lower income families who don't have reliable transportation, things like that, there are so many factors other than just the existence of a childcare program um, that go into having a, a, a stable and helpful, I guess, for lack of a better word, childcare system. Um, and Arizona is, is just not there. And it's at least not there universally throughout the state. It, it varies quite a bit based on where you live. When you were doing this reporting, you ended the, the story talking about some upcoming potential federal aid and how the state could leverage some of that. It's been a couple of months since you wrote that. So where are we in the going forward part of this? Right. That's a good question. So at the time that, that I covered this, Build Back Better Act um, was still sort of in play at the federal level. The child care piece of that did not pan out. Um, uh, there is still some discussion at the federal level, but but what everybody um, in the child care sector in Arizona was kind of pinning their big, hope, big hopes on um, did not happen. Now, the state currently is still sort of relying on this $1.2 in future of federal relief funding that has helped sort of prop up our child care system, um, prop up some families who need, you know, subsidies or additional help paying for it. But that, you know, that has an end date. That's a funding cliff. It's great right now, but it's essentially three years of funding um, and the state has not stepped in and the federal government has not stepped in at a level that's going to make a significant change so far. So, um, you know, we, of course, don't have a state budget yet. Uh, legislature's still in session, but this has not been a huge topic of conversation this year. Um, so I would be surprised if we suddenly had a, a sweeping child care funding proposal in that. It could happen, never say never, but so far it, it doesn't look likely and the feds are, are kind of at a standstill as well. So unfortunately, we're still kind of in, in a holding pattern, but Build Back Better, at least for now, is, is not going to be that lifeline that a lot of child care operators and parents, frankly, were, were hoping it would be. That was Maria Paletta with the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting. She says higher income families do have an easier time and therefore a lower economic hit when there are child care disruptions. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.